Father, thank you for this time that we have with your word open in front of us. And we pray that you would help us as we look at these extraordinary verses and all that's going on here and see what you are saying about yourself and about us so that we might know you better in our lives today and live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why, why, why does God do it like that? That is the question. At some point in our lives, most people find themselves asking that kind of question. Why like that, God? Why allow pandemic? Why let dictators get away with murder and genocide while parading their weapons of mass destruction? Why allow millions to be born in poverty with little hope of getting out of it? Why allow cancer? Why send Jesus to die and rise and then wait 2,000 years and counting to bring his return and the new heavens and the new earth that he promised? Why allow sin to persist? in the world that he made. Why do it like that? Those questions are huge questions, and they're serious and they're important questions, and they're, they're questions that also echo the, the, question, the kind of question we might have about these plagues that we've just heard, uh, some of them read in the readings just now. What is God doing with these extraordinary plagues? Why do it like this? Now, we haven't had time to read through all ten of them, so we're doing um, plays one to nine, but in brief, the, the plagues happen like this. Water turns to blood, then there are frogs, there are gnats, there are flies, all the Egyptian livestock die, there are boils, there's hail, there's locusts, there's darkness, and then finally, next time in chapter 11, the plague on the firstborn. And there's a lot of to and fro with Pharaoh that happens. So the basic repeated request or command from Moses is, God says, let my people go out into the desert to worship me. And Pharaoh doesn't always speak, but when he does, he says, take the frogs away, you can leave tomorrow, but then he changes his mind. In the plague of flies, he says, oh yeah, your, your people can worship the Lord, but only here in Egypt. And then, okay, well, no, you can go, but you know, not very far. And the flies leave and he hardens his heart again. And then the plague of hail. He says, oh, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. But still, after the hail stops, he and his officials harden their hearts. And then with the plague of locusts, number eight. Okay, he says, yep, yep, you've got it. This is terrible. And, uh, you know, yes, you can go. Go now. Go quickly. But ha hang on a minute. Before you do that, just tell me who's going again. And, oh, no, you can't all go. No, that's ridiculous. So look at uh, chapter 10, verse 10. Here it is on the screen. Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If, if, if I let you go along with your women and children, surely you are bent on evil no let only the men go and worship the lord since that what you've been asking that's what you've been asking for then moses and aaron were driven out of pharaoh's presence and so then locusts come and pharaoh says lord forgive me and and the locusts leave and and we read as we do four times during the plague the lord hardened 
Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the people go. So there's a lot of to and fro. Do you see there's a lot of to and fro between, between Moses and Pharaoh of, of will he, won't he, will Pharaoh actually do as he sort of half says he's going to do? There's a bit of comedy along the way with Pharaoh's magicians, as we'll see, and, and a reasonable overall question as we look at all of this that happens through these plagues is why? Why do it like this? What is going on? Because, for example, if God is God, well, why can't he just take his people out of Egypt straight away? That's a good question, isn't it? You know, he could just sort of beam them up. He could just move them. I mean, he's God. He's, he's the God of the universe. He could just scoop them up and, and off they go, but he doesn't. He could also have humbled Pharaoh straight away with just one plague. Or he could have just jumped straight away to the plague on the firstborn. There's a million different things you kind of think, well, you know, if he's God, he could, he could do it, couldn't he? But he does it like this. So why does he do it like this? Why does Pharaoh's heart harden and then also God harden Pharaoh's heart? If, in fact, the aim is to get his people out. Does it all actually point overall to God not being totally in control? You know, needing to bargain with Pharaoh in some way. You know, plan A was water into blood. That didn't work. Plan B was frogs. Oh, that doesn't work. So we go through plan C to I. And phew, finally, plan J with the firstborn, that, that does the job. Is that what's going on? Well, we need to dig a little bit deeper to begin to get answers that will begin to answer these kinds of questions. Why does God do it like this? Why does he do it with, like this with the plagues? And then we'll see how that applies to all the other times. We might wonder, why does God do it like this? With Jesus or even with our own lives right now. Now, there are some clues to notice, first of all, in what we've already seen in Exodus. In the previous chapters, if you've been with us, none of what Pharaoh does in these chapters, these plague chapters, is, is a surprise. So, again, on the screen, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, um, he says uh, that... The, Where's it gone? Oh, there we go. Yeah, 319 to 20. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. So that is God saying to Moses, I know what's coming. This is going to happen. And then chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So again, God is totally in control of what's going to happen. This is exactly as expected. It is, um, there's no accident going on. And then also remember the fundamental question in Exodus. Pharaoh sums it up in his initial response to Moses. Moses and Aaron say, let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the desert. And chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh's response is this. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. So that is the fundamental question. Not first of all, now, we think the fundamental question is in Exodus is, how is God going to get his people out of slavery? But actually, the fundamental question, first of all, is who is God? What kind of God is he? Is he a God that we can trust? 
Is he the kind of God you want to run to for mercy, or is he the kind that you need to flee from and hide? And the point is, the more that we know him, the more that we know then what he is like, the more we will be able to trust him with those big questions like, why did you do it like that? That's what we need to see this morning. In the plagues, as throughout the book, God is telling us who he is and why, therefore, we can trust him with the way that he does things. So, as you can see on the, on the back of the notice sheet, three things to see together. So, first of all, who is God? He's the Lord who makes himself known. He's the Lord who makes himself known. So, we've already begun answering that question, why ten plagues rather than one? We've asked that question, why make things apparently even more difficult? by hardening Pharaoh's heart. And the beginning of an answer is in plague number seven, the the plague of hail, which we heard. So chapter nine, verses 15 and 16. If you could turn turn to that with me on page 66. We heard this. By now, for by now, God says through Moses, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. So do you see the point? This is what we were saying, isn't it? He could have done that. He could have just swept them away straight away. But verse 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So do you see? He's acknowledging the point and he's saying, the point of what I'm doing here is to make myself known so that my name might might be known and proclaimed in all the earth. So his name to be proclaimed as the one who is greater than the greatest of kings, greater than Pharaoh, greater than Egypt's gods, as we will see later. And he wants the world to to see how great he is. So, So as we puzzle over why God hardens Pharaoh's heart and we think, is that fair, you know, for God to harden his heart? Because that means that Pharaoh won't respond. Is that just? Well, one answer is God does that because it allows God to show his greatness. There's a sense in which one plague, just one plague or no plagues would not do that. He wouldn't be humbled and put in his place. We wouldn't be humbled and put in our place. But then we say, okay, but is that really fair for God to harden Pharaoh's heart like that? It's striking as you read through these chapters. Without embarrassment, Moses writing this up later, he switches between saying, Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He just says both. At the end of some plagues, he says one. At the end of others, he says the other. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He doesn't explain. He just says that's how it is. Both are true, in other words. And what that means is Pharaoh freely chose to do what God had already freely chosen for him. See? As far as Pharaoh's experience went, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. You know, if you'd sat him down and said, Pharaoh, are you you acting freely here? He'd say, of course I am. I'm Pharaoh. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. I'm doing exactly what I want. And I don't want God's people to leave. And actually what we see with him is a classic picture of how we so often act as human beings, isn't it? You know, with all the excuses and the delays and the bargaining, because the one thing he wants to do, the one thing, is to cling on to power for himself. 
That's exactly what he wants. So he's acting completely freely. He is freely choosing this. And so he'll say anything and do anything in the moment to make that happen. Do you know um, Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows? The story, wonderful story of the English countryside and all of that. But Mr. Toad, who has this craze about motor cars, and his friends, the other animals, are saying, Mr. Toad, you've got to stop driving these motor cars. You're crashing and causing all kinds of chaos. Stop driving your motor cars. And they shut him in a room with the badger. And he's made to sign a piece of paper saying he will never drive a motor car again. And he does that. He signs the piece of paper. And he comes out, and it's all very solemn. You know, my life has changed. It's all over. But straight away, he goes out of the house. He gets back in the motor car. He drives off, and he crashes it. And the animals say, but you promised. You promised you were in there in the room, and you signed a piece of paper that said you weren't going to do it again with Badger. And he says, well, of course I did. I'd have said anything in there, he says. And, you know, Badger is so persuasive and so eloquent, but, you know, I didn't really mean it. But, like, you know, I would have said anything in there. How could I not? And Pharaoh has that kind of feel about him. You know, he'll, he will say any, he'll say whatever it takes in the moment because his heart is set on what he wants. But actually his heart, therefore, is unchanged at every point, and that always comes out. But he is doing what he wants. And in, in, in that way, we, 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 in the way that we see throughout the Bible, most especially when Jesus dies on the cross, in fact, when you think about it. You know, that is human beings do what, doing what they want. They want to put Jesus to death. But it is also God doing exactly what he wants. Do you see? Both are true at the same time. That is how great God is, in fact. So the point we need to see is that God's fundamental desire through all of this, first of all, is to make himself known. To make himself known so we see, wow, look how great he is. He can even harden Pharaoh's heart in order to make it necessary for these plagues to happen, in order that we might see how great he is. And even through that, for that still to be Pharaoh's free choice for it to happen, it, look how great he is. That's what we're supposed to see. And we're supposed to see that at the centre of this story, therefore, is not, first of all, a rescue. It's not a way of humbling Pharaoh. At the centre of the story is him. He's at the centre. It's about him. It's not about us, first of all. And actually, when we think of all our questions and our problems and our frustrations that we come up against in life, actually, often, the problem is that we begin by assuming that life is all about us, that we are at the centre. And therefore, our concerns and questions matter most of all. And if they're not answered, that's not good enough. And so what happens is God kind of enters our lives, as I often say, like the AA guy, you know, who we will call up when the car has broken down. Maybe you're RAC or Green Flag, but I'm AA and they're good. So, and I don't know how to fix cars, so, you know, I call up the guy who, who does. And, and the thing about the AA, they're amazing. They come and they're always unfailingly cheerful. These guys who come, they're just really friendly. It must be part of the training. They must have to go on a, you know, this is how to treat customers. But they're absolutely brilliant and they turn up. 
and, uh, they, they, and they help fix the problem. But they enter our lives at that point kind of on our terms, don't they? He comes on my terms because I've got a problem, so I need to call him in. So he comes and fixes it. And, you know, cheerful and friendly as he is, when the job is done, then, you know, actually I, I don't expect or want him to hang around, do I? You know, I've got stuff to get on with, got places to go, I've got a car that's been fixed, I need to go out and do whatever the job is that's been delayed. But you see, it's my life, it's my car, I'm at the centre, and I call him in for help and then expect him to go. And we so easily treat God the same way, do you see? See, he's, he's there to help us with our problems. We're at the centre, he's the fixer, the rescuer even, and, and he's brilliant, you know, he provides salvation, that's wonderful for me. But through these plagues, God is saying, if you want to understand who I am, you need to see, first of all, that I'm at the centre, he's saying. He's at the centre. Look how glorious he is. It's about him. And, and, and that would be bad if it was a human being saying that. You know, someone saying, it's all about me. Well, yeah, that, the reason it's bad that human beings saying that is because, actually, the universe is all about God. He's at the centre. He has the right to say that. He made it. He made us. And the world works best when it revolves around him, not the other way around. And so those questions, why does God do it like that? Often we're looking for kind of human answers. You know, here's a human reason that makes sense for why the pandemic came, or why there are wars, or why we're still waiting for Jesus' return after 2,000 years. And, and maybe the beginning of an answer is instead, well, this is all so that we might see more of who God is that he's in control, that we can trust him, even with this terrible thing, that he is a God of mercy, he's a God of love, that we can depend on. And each of these difficult things enables us to do that more. Now, these are not easy questions. But when we see that the world revolves, first of all, around God, that we're here for him and not the other way around, well, things perhaps begin to make slightly more sense. And that is what we see as we continue to delve into what God is making known about himself. So he, he's the Lord who makes himself known. Then secondly, he's the Lord who is creator and judge of all. So that is a further message of these plagues. You see, the plagues, they cover all aspects of creation. Water, land and sky and water turning to blood and, and, and frogs in the water, livestock on the land and boils on humans on the land and locusts destroying the land completely and then gnats and flies and hail in the sky. Do you see water, land, sky? The whole of creation is covered in these plagues and then light turns to darkness and then finally comes death. So do you see this isn't just plan A to J, it is God showing his authority and power over every aspect of creation. And then further, it's a kind of undoing or reversal of creation, a decreation. Think about what happens at the beginning of Genesis. Genesis 1 begins, let there be light. And the ordered creation of life that flourishes in the created order follows. And here we see that order undone. With water that gives life becoming poisonous as it's turned to blood and all the fish and everything die and they have to dig other holes to find water. And then creatures who are made to be ruled by human beings in Genesis 1, well, they end up ruling over human beings and destroying them. And the ravage of disease comes. And in the ending in darkness and death, 
then in plagues 9 and 10, where Genesis in one sense begins and comes out of that darkness into light and creates life. Now these plagues are undoing that and ending in darkness and death. And there's even a kind of parallel in the orderliness of the two accounts. So in Genesis 1, one of the sort of striking features is how ordered it is and how structured it is as a chapter that, um, that, that, show, that talks about the creation of the world. And you can see the patterns of creating and filling in, in Genesis chapter 1. And here in the plagues as well, there is, there is a kind of pattern and order. So people have noticed the plagues come in threes. There's two warnings and then there's no warning on the third. And the repeated motifs about Pharaoh's heart and so on. This is an ordered decreation that is taking place by the God who is creator and judge of all. And as we go along, we also see the superiority of, uh, of God over the Egyptians in various ways. So the magicians try their hardest to replicate the signs, you know, but what happens? Well, they can only do some of them, and then they give up after about three. And when they do manage them, all they can do is just create more of the problem thing that's being forced. So what they do, you know, God turns water into blood. They, they do more water into blood somehow. And uh, God uh, does frogs, and they do more frogs. Not take them away again. And so do you see, together with all of that, God is also demonstrating his superiority over Egypt. So God can just click his fingers and the whole plague stops. They can't do that. And then they give up anyway. And then Egypt's gods, the gods they were worshipping as well. So chapter 12, verse 12, you don't need to turn to it, but that mentions the, uh, the, the, the Israel's, uh, Egypt's gods st- specifically. And all these years later, our knowledge of Egypt's gods is a little bit more sketchy than it would have been to the original readers but it seems likely that they probably had gods who looked like frogs and locusts or were in charge of the weather or whatever. And so God is kind of quietly also humiliating the gods that they worshipped by doing it like this. So he's saying, I'm the true God. I'm greater than them. Worship me, not them. Do you see? So God is making himself known through all these signs and he's showing that he is the creator and judge of all. He's the God of our Muslim colleagues. He's the God of our Jewish next door neighbours. He's the dog of our he's the God of our atheist family members. He's the God of all. He has no rivals. He's the creator and judge of all. And then thirdly, he is showing through these plagues that he is the Lord who is the saviour of his people. The Lord who is the saviour of these people. You see, these signs are not simply about judgment. They are about salvation that comes through and after judgment. And we see little hints with some of the plagues. So, So in some of them, there's a distinction made. So the flies swarm on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites in the land of Goshen inside Egypt. The livestock who die are the Egyptian livestock, but not the Israelites' livestock. And then the hail falls only on the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And we'll see more of that, especially with the tenth plague next time. And we discover later that it's not just God's people who come out of Egypt, 
There are some Egyptians who leave with them too. So chapter 12, verse 38, we'll see next time. We, we hear about other people going up with them out of the lands who, unlike Pharaoh, have bowed the knee to the true God they've come to know through what he's doing here. So this is about salvation for anybody who will see, as God reveals himself, ah, oh, I need to align myself with this God and come to him. And again, do you notice we're not given any reason, actually, for why God saves his people at this point. It's not that he says, you know, look at, look at my people. Look at how much more righteous they are. Look at how much better people they are than the others. He, do, he doesn't say that at all. He just says, they're my people and I want to show them mercy. And mercy always starts with him. You see, he takes the initiative. And we're the grateful recipients of that mercy. Now we think, well, is that, is that really fair for him just to sort of decide I'm going to show mercy to these people and not these people? Well, if it were any other way, it would mean that in some way our salvation would actually depend on, first of all, on us getting it together to prove that we're good enough, to prove that, you know, we really deserve to be saved and to be rescued. But no, through the whole Bible, it's always God who takes the initiative and we then respond to that. And that's what he's done in Jesus. See, there came another day of uncreation, of the earth splitting and rocks shaking, of curse and darkness, as Jesus died innocently, undeservedly, on the cross. But like with the judgment of the plagues, actually that was a day when salvation also came through his death. The cross where Jesus died is the ultimate sign that God has given us that first of all shows us who God is. So when Jesus dies on the cross, we see, well, who is God? He's a God of justice because he, he, he takes sin this seriously that you can't just sweep it under the carpet and say, it's all right, it's all forgiven. No, it's really serious. Evil is really serious. It needs to be dealt with. And the price of that is the death of his own son. That's how seriously he takes justice. We see at the cross that he is a God of justice. But we also see at the cross that he is a God of mercy, you see, who offers forgiveness through Jesus' death to anyone who will trust him. And so like with the plagues, we look at the cross where Jesus dies and we stand in awe at who God is. And when we struggle with those questions that we began with, you know, why does God do it like that? whether they're questions about why he did, like, did it like that in history or, or why is he doing it like that in my life right now today? Why suffering in whatever form it comes? Well, again, we go to the cross and we stop and we stand in awe and we say, God, this isn't what I deserve as I, as I think of your son dying for me on the cross and suffering undeservedly, totally innocently, entering into the suffering of a suffering world. And we may not understand everything we go through, but at the cross we see, God, you know, you take evil seriously. And you have acted to end it. And you have entered as a human being into the suffering that we experience. And like with the, the plagues at the we also see at the cross God's enemies put in their place 
You know, we saw the Egyptian gods humiliated in the plagues. And it's the same in one sense with the cross for us now, that all the kind of isms and ologies that intimidate us in the world today, that in one sense the world around us worships as God, whatever is the latest ism or ology that people kind of decide, this is what life is all about, and I need everybody to know about this. It's a kind of worshipping another God when we make that the one fundamental thing we live for. And those isms and ologies may make us feel intimidated and they make us feel like Christianity is maybe just a little bit irrelevant in the 21st century. Well, the plagues and the cross in the end remind us there will only be one winner. You know, we don't need to be overawed. We don't need to update the Christian faith to kind of fit in with the world around us. God's got this. He's the creator. He's the judge of all. He's the saviour of his people. And what he wants us then to do is is right there at the beginning of the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, chapter 10, verse 2. As he does this, he says, I'm doing this so that, chapter 10, verse 2, you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. So you may go and tell of what I've done. And we saw that back at the start with Pharaoh, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, says God. So you can see, if you've seen who God is, he's saying, through these plagues, if we today have seen who God is, even more so through Jesus and through his death on the cross, if we've seen who he is and we, we know him, well, our job is now to go and tell the world about him. That's the point. To go to our friends and our families and our neighbours and our colleagues and say, do you know this God? This is what Christianity is about. It's not about sort of rule keeping or living, you know, these are the rules and you must keep them. It's first of all, no, this is God. Do you know him? He made you. He made the world. And you can know him personally through Jesus. His Holy Spirit will live in you today so that you have a personal connection to him. So it's our job to say, do you know this God to the world around us? Because life is all about him. He's the creator and judge of all and the saviour of his people. So come and join in and trust him and see how only life with him can even begin to make sense of those really tough questions that we face in our world today. Let's pray now. So, Father God, we are humbled before you as we see how great you are. You are the true God. Reigns over the whole universe, over the whole of creation. 
over our lives. And so we want to say our lives are all first of all about you. And so as we face this week and the next month and our whole of the rest of our lives, Father, would it be with you at the centre? You come first. We humble ourselves before you. We praise you that you are a God who saves those who don't deserve it like us. So that when we trust in your son, Jesus, we have life with you that starts now and lasts forever where we get to be with you at the centre for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.